Hello, and welcome to Hope Church. We're a local church with chill style, real faith, and no perfect people allowed. Thanks for checking out our podcast. This is a message from our SoCal location in the Santa Cruz, California area. We hope this message is encouraging. If you live near either of our locations, we'd love to have you join us for one of our many Sunday services. How are you all doing? Good, that was lively. Uh, good morning. I'm, I'm uh, Chris, and I'm here to share the word with you, and I'm excited about it. Um, I, uh, the last couple weeks, so we've been in this series called Centered. First things first is a good way to kick off the year. And um, in the first week, Tim talked about um, uh, having a more Christ-centered uh, kind of way of thinking about our families. And, and then last week, if you were here, Danny came and he spoke about um, the way this plays out in our church life, our church culture, and how uh, there's no solo version of Christianity, right? That we don't do this alone. And, um, and this week, uh, sorry, I'm getting a text from Danny there. Um, and this week, we're going to be talking about how to take this public. So this thing is, this, this isn't a, this Christianity thing, we don't do it in private, right? We, we it's, it's a public offering. And uh, in fact, you know, the, the word that in uh, faith traditions for years people used for this, what we're doing right here, is liturgy, which is a Latin word, which means public service, right? It's meant to be in public, not in private. It's kind of funny that we're in a building with no windows, but uh, that's just kind of what we have. But it's a, it's a public expression, uh, this thing. We're, we're meant to be uh, part of a living organism that exists to be like a shining city on a hill, uh, in fact, the only version of Christianity that God finds acceptable, and this is from the scriptures, is one that addresses the plight of people that are lost and hurting and broken out there, right? I should warn you that this week, um, uh, this week uh, I got hit with the COVID. I don't know how you say that. I got COVID. I, it sounds like a gift. Someone gave it to me. Yay. Uh, I got it. And uh, I had it and went through it, and I got off quarantine yesterday. And I'm not 100%. I'm a little loopy still. So, um, but you know, as a side benefit, we had nothing to do except rest this week. So Amy and I decided after the kids go to bed in the evenings, we start. We watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the extended edition. That's like 14 hours of movie, people. Um, so I was I was like deep in Middle Earth when I wrote this message. So, <clears throat> you know, when you're watching the Lord of the Rings like all all together back to back, things get really dramatic around the house. It's like you know, saying things like, Amy, pass me the bowl of Isildur so I can make my oatmeal, you know. It just is very dramatic. Um, so today, we're going we're gonna to look, um, look at the scriptures and kind of see what they have to say about this public version of Christianity, right? So, so first, I, I want to, uh, so what I want to do is I, I want to make a couple observations. We're going to read a couple of passages, and I'm going to make a couple observations about those passages, and then we're going to say a prayer together, all together, and then we'll be done, all right? So, so pretty easy. Um, you know, when we look out into the universe, we see something that is really quite remarkable. If you, if you ever look up, look out, you get a telescope, and you look out into the universe, you see that things operate a very particular way. They could operate another way, but they operate this way. And one of the ways that they operate is that small things tend to orbit around big things. That's, 
as a constant of the universe. Wherever you look, you see this. In fact, I brought a picture of Saturn. Um, I'm going to throw up there. Look at that. Beautiful picture. Um, didn't come out so good up there, but, uh, but it is a, it's actually a beautiful picture. It's taken by the Voyager space probe. And um, the Voyager space probe got all these beautiful close-up shots of Saturn and the rings around Saturn. And you look at how it looks so smooth like a, like a record player, doesn't it? Because you know, you know what those rings are made up of? Does anyone know what makes up the rings of Saturn? Rocks. Yeah, rocks. Rocks. And what else? Ice, that's right. It's rocks, and I, it looks so smooth from here, doesn't it? That's because they're orbiting around Saturn in a very smooth, logical, and ordered way. Because small things fall into orbit around big things out there in space. And then, so if you go from the macro view and you go way down into the micro view, and you, if you could take an electron microscope and look at the atoms that make up you and I and this table and everything else, you see that the same thing is happening. Electrons orbiting around the nucleus of an atom. Everything is held together by this principle that affects the very large and the very small. There's order in the universe. Order, in fact, structure is the universal default. It's how the universe began. And someone designed it that way. It looks very much like someone designed it, doesn't it? God did. He designed it to be that way. That way instead of another way. So why is it that when we look around here, just this one place in the universe, Earth, we look around, we see so much disorder? Why is that? Why do we see so much disorder here? Well, the answer is simple. Because Earth has something nowhere else has. It has us, right? And God gave to human beings a very unique and singular gift. It doesn't exist anywhere else that we know of. He gave us free will, the ability to choose. We can choose order or we can choose chaos. And unfortunately, many of us have chosen chaos, right? We do and we say awful things to one another. And the world suffers because of it. So during this series, we've been meditating on what Jesus has to say about how we could possibly return to his natural order for things. In Matthew, we find this uh, sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount because he was on a mount when he gave it. And, and so it's the Sermon on the Mount. But this is really Jesus' manifesto. It's, it's the most important collection of sayings that we have from Jesus. And it sets a new standard for his followers. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've chosen to follow him, and you're, you're a Jesus follower, and, and this manifesto is for you, and it's for me. It tells us not just how to live, it tells us not just how to be drawn out from earthly systems and set apart, it also tells us how to live within the people that are still under those systems and interact with them and to love them and to bless them and to lead them possibly to something better. Last week and the week before, you heard this, this verse that comes from this Sermon on the Mount, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Do you remember hearing this last week, right? Seek first his kingdom. This verse is right at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> and it gives us a picture of what it means to bring order back to the world. When we choose to place 
important things at the center. I, I think a lot of times when we hear this verse, I, I know I have experienced this verse this way. When I was younger, I'd hear, seek first the kingdom, and it sounds like you're, you're putting the kingdom, whatever that is, at the top of a list, right? You're putting it at the top, and then things fall in line behind that. But, but think of it more like this, bringing important things to the center of your life. And then as you do that, the less important things naturally fall into orbit around them. That's what happens when you apply order to something. It has ramifications on everything else. So what does kingdom mean when we say put the kingdom first? It means the values of Jesus, the way that he would prefer things to be, his, his original design for human behavior, and how, how we should live, right? So speaking of values, just a couple verses before that one that we just read, that we've heard from the last couple weeks, there's a, there's a section in the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to look at. And Jesus gives us this, it's like a proverb, it's, but it's, it's more than that. It, it, it tells us how to handle and care for his values. It tells us what to do about them. And at face value, it sounds like a proverb about money. So Jesus was a brilliant communicator. In fact, look at, here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about his words, right? He's a brilliant communicator, and he knew his audience, particularly this, <clears throat> this ancient Jewish audience, and they loved Proverbs. They loved Proverbs. And so he writes his own little proverb, and it sounds like it's a proverb about money. Now, what's a proverb? A proverb is kind of like a pithy little saying that has uh, some truth at its face value, and this one does. But sometimes proverbs are sneaky because they package within them a deeper, more philosophical truth, and it rides along with the surface truth, and you get both of them at the same time, and you don't know it, right? So he does just that, and he blows the doors off. Check this out. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 24. It says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, he says. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So at face value, this verse sounds like what? It sounds like you can't take it with you, right? You can't take it with you. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. That's true. And that's not, that's not a strictly Christian kind of way of thinking. I mean, you see that anyway. I mean, over the Christmas break, Amy and I literally watched an old film called You Can't Take It With You. It's a great, it's a great film. Um, So that's the face value truth of the proverb. You can't take it with you. And that's true. But as we said, Jesus' teachings are often multifaceted. They have layers within layers. Let's peel back one of the layers. Let's do a little excavating, right? And to excavate, sometimes you have to look beyond the language that's written in. So we're, we're receiving this in English because we're English speakers, but you know it wasn't spoken or written in English. When it was written down, it was written in Greek. And if you look at those those uh, early Greek words, there's deeper meanings for us there. So, for example, 
<clears throat> says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, right? Now, when I was a little kid and I'd hear this verse, the way I interpret it was, if you, it's kind of like a video game, right? You do good things here and there's a little score that's like increasing somewhere in the heavenly realm, right? It's going up, all right? Be honest, you, you've thought this, right? You've thought this, okay? Like you do good things, like I, I obey mommy today and another point goes up on the board, boop. And then somehow, some way, when you get to heaven, it's like everybody cheers at how high your score is, right? You get there, ah, it's me, ah, oh, look, at, look at the score, it's amazing, it's so high, right? That's how I kind of interpreted this verse. And I think largely that's how a lot of people hear this. But if you look really carefully at the Greek language, store up and treasure are the same Greek word. It's actually the same. It, it, what he's talking about is taking your value. So you can ascribe value to things, right? He's saying the things that you ascribe value to, shift those over to eternal things. So think about it like this. This is a $20 bill, right? If you can't see it, it is. It's a $20 bill. It's got a two and a zero. It's got Mr. Jackson. It's a $20 bill, okay? How much is this worth? Not a trick question. $20. <laughs> yeah. It gets you one gourmet burger, right? Uh, $20. It's worth $20. Who says that it's worth $20? Who says? Who says? Treasury? Who else? Any thoughts? Who says this is worth $20? Yes? So I was hoping you'd all say the government. Um, uh, and it's true that the treasury, the government, says this is worth $20. But only if we all agree on that, right? They can say it. They can say, here, folks, this is worth $20. But if we all got together, all of us together, and we had a meeting and we said, this is now worth $40. It would be worth $40 because we said so, because we agree, right? Collectively, we ascribe, we take value and we put it on this thing. Now, we've agreed that this is worth $20, right? We do that collectively. But if there was some cataclysmic event, an asteroid hit the United States tomorrow and we all died, would that still be worth $20? No, because we're not here to ascribe, it's just paper then, right? Someone might use it to you know, start a fire or something. It has no value beyond what we ascribe to it because it's temporal, it's temporal. And it's contingent. Its value is contingent on our saying that it has that value. What about kindness? What value does kindness have? Does it have value? Let me ask you that. Is kindness valuable? Who says? See, there are values that are transcendent. There are values that are contingent, meaning we decide together and just as easily that contingency can be taken away. And there are values, there are things that have value that are decided by someone else. Someone transcendent. Someone transcendent of time and space. Who could do that? Only God, right? Only God. We can't decide that kindness is valuable. It simply is a value. So he's saying shift the things that you value over to, from contingent things temporal things to eternal things. 
See, I can invest in a hot stock or a Bitcoin. Holy moly, you see the way Bitcoin blew? I, I didn't see that coming. I remember when I first heard about that, I was like, that is, that's here today, gone tomorrow, right? You can invest your money in something, and even if you get a high rate of return, all you have at the end is money, right? You still only have a temporal benefit. When my heart stops beating, that money stops being of any benefit to me. You can't take it with you, right? Or I can invest in the lives of people around me. I can invest kindness. I can invest generosity. I can stand up for their equity and their justice. I can do things to improve the quality of their life. And that has a value that will last for generations, long after I'm gone. Long after people have forgotten that I ever existed, that value will keep going. You see the difference? But here's the truly, this, we haven't even got to the radical part. Here's the truly radical part. Think about this. The things that Jesus is telling us to shift our value over onto, all of these things have one thing in common. Besides being eternal things, they are things that are designed by their nature to be given away. We give them away. Cash is not designed to be given away, right? You're not supposed to part with it lightly. But kindness, kindness is designed to be given away. Generosity is designed to be given away. The irony of our time and this place in our culture is how obsessed we are with talking about things like our freedoms, right? So <clears throat> we love our freedom. We worship our freedom, right? We, we treasure our freedom. We talk about it all the time. We're, we're scared of losing our freedom. Beware, we might lose our freedom. We have to fight for our freedom, people tell us. You gotta fight for your freedom. If you want it, you gotta fight for it. Don't let the bad people take your freedom from you, is what we say. And through it all, through it all, we become less and less free because no one who holds on to anything tightly is really free. Jesus is teaching us here to live like this, with our hands open. If something has real, lasting value, you give it away. So this little proverb of Jesus uh, ends with a funny, kind of odd little saying. It says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. The reason this is strange is because it's demonstrably false. We see people do it all the time, right? People serve two masters all the time. I do it. You do it. We all do it, right? We see people do it. We, pe we see people do it hard. I mean, they're just living uh, just a split life. They're doing this and they're doing that, you know? I think what he's trying to say is not that it can't be done, is that it can't be done sustainably. You can't sustainably serve two masters. Are you weary? Are you tired of what feels like an unsustainable model of life? Perhaps it's time to look and see how many masters are you serving? Are your values split between temporal, contingent things, things that will not last, and eternal, eternal values? You know, in older translations of the Bible, so this one says, you cannot serve both God and money, right? But in older translations of the Bible, 
<clears throat> it used to say, you cannot serve both God and, does anyone know the weird little word that it used to say there? Mammon. Wow, pretty good. That's good. So mammon. It's such a strange word that no one really quite knew how to translate it. Eventually, they just settled on money because they thought that was the closest, right? Um, but it doesn't mean just money. It doesn't mean money like that $20 bill that I showed you. It doesn't mean you can't serve God in cash. Mammon is too complicated. It's a Greek word. It means, it means wealth, but it means the power that comes with the kind of wealth that it's talking about. It means, it means power. It means privilege. It means control. It means safety, elevated status. These are things that people seek in our society, right? If we're honest, these are things that all of us seek and try to get. What Jesus is telling us is you cannot build a sustainable Christian life built on kingdom values if we continue to try to acquire and hold on to and consolidate power, power for our own benefit. And you might think, well, I'm not out there trying to get power. I, you know, I'm not a politician. I, you know, I'm not trying to rule over anybody. But power is a word that, that exists on a scale. You know, if up here you have a, an emperor lording over all of his subjects, down here you have cutting off a little old lady so you can get a better parking spot than her. You know? It's the same thing. It just exists on a scale. Does that make sense? Another way of thinking about this would be to ask yourself. This is a question I ask myself sometimes when, I'm, when I really want to have a bad day. I ask myself, why am I doing the things that I do? Why do you do the things that you do? Here's a reality about human consciousness and human behavior is that people, generally speaking, they do the things they do because they want something for themselves. That's why humans do what they do, because they want something for themselves. You might say, well, I'm not that selfish. I don't do everything I do because I want something for me. Well, think about it. Really think about it. We do the things we do, because we can do even good things with selfish motivation. I did this good thing to look like I'm a good person in front of people. I, I cared for these people that are my family because that's what society says I'm supposed to do, you know? And they make me feel whole. You know, think about it. The things that we do, we do because we want something for us. But what Jesus is saying here is he's turning it on. He's, he's changing our hearts. He's helping us see there's another way to live. And in this model... Jesus followers do the things they do because they want something for someone else. See the difference? So I told you I had, I had two observations. Here's the first one. When we embrace the values of Jesus, we learn to give them away. When we really see the values of Jesus coming into play in our lives, when we truly wrap our arms around what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we'll see the evidence is we're now giving them away at every opportunity. What we have, we give to others. <clears throat> this is easy to say, but hard to do. Because there's roadblocks to this kind of living. There are roadblocks. There are. For example, seeking safety. We, are, we seem wired innately to seek safety for ourselves. We gather behind closed doors with like-minded people. This is both literal and figurative. We, we, you know, we, we try to... This is tribalism. This is very common when you look at our society, when you look at the way people relate. We, we try to get around people that look like us and talk like us and act like us. 
right? And we draw lines of distinction because it's safer in tribes. And when, when we're in a place where it, it looks like it's getting scary because there's too many people that don't look like us or believe the th same things that we, we do, we think we'll go somewhere else where they look more like us and talk like us and act like us. You find a passage anywhere in the Bible that tells us that it's our primary motivation as believers, as followers of Jesus, to seek out safety and comfort, I, ha I have yet to see that. Another roadblock is we make enemies instead of friends. We make enemies instead of friends. You might go, well, I, I don't have any enemies. I don't, you know, I don't fight with anybody. I don't, I don't have enemies. Do you ever use a word or a group of words to describe a group of people that are different than you? Those leftists, those secular progressives, right? Those right-wing radicals, those Dodger fans. Should I keep going until I get to the one that you've used this week, right? Huh? We do this. We do this. We, we label people as being a group who's different than we identify them, they're different than us. What do we really mean? They're not as good as we are. We have more of the information. We have more of the story. We got our belief system, our culture, whatever it is, is better than theirs. So I ascribe a label and make sure that everyone knows that they're different than me. There's, I usually shy away from these kinds of reductionist phrases, but I'm going to use one right now. There's two kinds of people on this planet. There are two kinds of people on this planet. There are friends of Jesus, and there are future friends of Jesus. That's how we should think about the world. Let's look at one more passage from this Sermon on the Mount. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. So he's talking to his future followers. This is us. So he's talking to us right now. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, a city on a hill is actually a terrible military strategy because it can be easily surrounded. A lamp on a stand is meant to be seen. A city on a hill is meant to be surrounded. We, we can't be a city shining on a hill or a lamp on a stand if we're all congregating behind a wall or hiding away in a small town far, far from here with people that are just more like us, that have our values. It's not the way of his people to live safe and comfortable lives while others suffer and die in a lack of knowledge of him. But here's the trick. We have to, and this is, this is a horrible word. I hate using this word. It's awful. We have to submit. We have to submit to what he is asking of us. It takes vulnerability to do that. Sometimes it can feel like being surrounded and exposed. That's not a very safe feeling, is it? 
surrounded and exposed? Who wants to feel surrounded and exposed? Right? It's true. It's dangerous. It's dangerous what he's calling us to. It's, it, it requires us to make ourselves vulnerable. But by doing that, we're following his lead. Think about it. So we, we started this little time talking about free will. He introduced free will in human beings and gave us the ability to choose or not choose him. So what did he do there? He made himself vulnerable to our refusal. The God who created the universe and set everything in order, he made us and he made himself vulnerable to our rejection. And he's just asking us to follow his lead. That's what he's doing. Here's my second observation. It's that when we submit to the values of Jesus, we learn to shine. That's where we shine, is when we're submitted to his values, when, when we're a people living with open hands, when we're surrounded and vulnerable, that's where we shine, right? I was going to tell you a story just to wrap up our time. There's a, <clears throat> there was an author, his name is Lou Wallace. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, he was not a follower of Jesus, but was interested in history, and he set out to write a book, um, and he started researching the historical Jesus. And in the process of doing so, he, he fell in love with Jesus, and he, he came to have a saving relationship with him, and he became a Christian, and he finished his book, and his book was called Ben-Hur. And you may not have read the book, but you probably have seen the movie starring Charlton Heston, right? Ben-Hur. And there's a, there's a scene, a really poignant scene in this movie. It's in the book as well, where, where Ben-Hur has fallen pretty far. His status is, um, as you know, someone high up in society, he's fallen really far. He's, he's become uh, imprisoned and enslaved by the Romans. And uh, him, along with some other uh, Jewish prisoners, are being led to this coastal town where they're going to be put on ships and they're going to be made to row. You know, it's, that's their fate, their sentence. Uh, is, is essentially death. And, and they're being led through this small town, and the Romans stop for a break on the side of the road, and the prisoners are exhausted, and they're, you know, they're sweating, and they're, they're thirsty and starving and near death, and they're all chained up together. And then Jesus appears. And you don't see his face. Do you remember this scene from the movie? Jesus appears. He, he steps out among the prisoners. You know what he doesn't do? is he doesn't, he doesn't condemn the Romans. He doesn't make speeches about their politics. He doesn't do anything to change the situation. But what he does do is he scoops up some cold water from a well, and he brings it, and he begins to give the prisoners something to drink. I think this is a beautiful picture of what Jesus is calling us to. We were not placed here to make enemies. We were placed here to introduce people to Jesus, to make friends. We hope this message encouraged you to take the next steps in your relationship with God. The cool thing is that you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of ways you can get connected here at Hope. Not only do we want you to feel at home at Hope, we'd love to help you find a home. Please check out discoverhope.church and click connect or just email us at info at discoverhope.church. Lastly, we give everything we can away for free and rely 100% on volunteers. And 
donations to support this ministry. If you'd like to give to the Mission of Hope Church, you can select the Give option on our website or text any amount to 831-800-2060. Thanks again for tuning in.